0: with Dr. Frank Turek. Today, we are going to talk about something that we've never talked about on this program before. It is the existence of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Not the New Testament, the Old Testament. And my friend Jonathan McClatchy will be on after the first break to discuss the Trinity in the Old Testament. But before... We get there. I need to talk about something that has come up this week that I didn't know about it. Very few people knew about it. It wasn't on the radar, even though last week we talked about this issue in depth because it's the 46th anniversary of the famous Roe v. Wade decision. We talked about the issue of abortion. And just this past week, New York passed, well, look, I can only call it what it is. They passed an an infanticide bill, basically, a law that will allow you to kill your children all the way up to the moment of birth. And in fact, you can even kill a child after it's born if you were trying to abort it and it survived the abortion. That's where we are in the state of New York right now. And by the way, in New York, you don't even, according to this bill, you don't even have to be a doctor to do this. Just some sort of medical professional, a nurse, a PA, something like that. You, can, you don't have to be a doctor. Now, this is nothing short of barbaric. And when this was passed and signed by Governor Andrew Cuomo in Albany, New York, there was a standing ovation. A standing ovation. What were these people thinking? Whatever happened to to the old line, keep abortion safe, legal, and rare? Of course, that was a contradiction at the time. Why keep it rare? If there's nothing wrong with it, why keep it rare? Well, the people today in New York are now saying, well, not only do we want it to be uh, not rare, we're going to celebrate when we do this. Now, if you're not angry at this, you're not following the example of Jesus. Oh, Jesus was angry? What? Look, I, I did a podcast back on April 28th, 2018, and it was titled, Be Angry Like Jesus. Now, I'm not going to go through all that again. We don't have time. I'll we'll have a few minutes to talk about this issue before we get to the Trinity in the Old Testament, but let me point out that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, talks to the political leaders of Israel at the time, the scribes, the Pharisees, really the Pharisees, who were part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council who ultimately sentenced Jesus to die with, they were were lawmakers in Israel. They were the politicians. And here's what he says to them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. One translation says, the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In fact, basically what he's saying is, you should have tithed your spices— but you should also pay attention to the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Oh, sweet and gentle Jesus said this? Yes, Jesus was angry at sin, and you should be angry at sin too. We, Our government today is telling us what light bulbs we can and can't use, but they're not telling us we ought not kill our children. And in New York, they're telling you, It's a a great thing that you ought to be able to kill your children right up to the moment of birth. And by the way, if the baby comes through the birth canal and you didn't want it, go ahead and kill it anyway. CNN put it this way. Here's Here's the CNN headline. New York puts in measures to protect access to abortion even if Roe v. Wade is overturned. That's their headline. Here's the Fox News headline. New York celebrates, which is really what it was, celebrates legalizing abortion until birth. As Catholic bishops question Cuomo's faith. Well, first of all, you don't you don't even need to be a Catholic, a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew. You, you can be an atheist and realize that abortion's wrong. You may not be able to justify why abortion is wrong, but you know it's wrong, regardless of your worldview. Particularly abortion all the way up to the moment of birth. Now, look, every law legislates morality. Every law declares one behavior right and the opposite behavior wrong. Here in New York, they're legislating the position that a woman has a moral right to to execute her children right up to the moment of birth. And again, if the baby's born and you wanted it not to be born because you were trying to abort it, you can let it die or kill it then. This is according to the New York law now. By the way, if you don't need to be a doctor to do this, whatever happened to the preventing back alley abortions? Apparently in New York you can do that now. now. Now women are at risk Whatever happened to protecting the life of the mother? Well, apparently the life of the mother isn't all that important either. Because if you don't need a doctor there for this procedure, that's not really giving any, uh, any deference to the life of the mother here. We don't really care if the mother dies apparently in New York. Oh, Frank, you're going too far now. Then why would you say a doctor can't or doesn't need to be there for this? Whatever happened to making abortion safe, legal, and rare? Again, if there's no reason to make it rare if there's nothing wrong with it. Apparently there is nothing wrong with it in New York, according to these people. Again, you don't even need to be a Christian to know that this is barbaric, that this is wrong. Now, people are asking, how could anyone celebrate this? What are these people thinking? Well, you know what the right answer is? They're not thinking. They've been given over to depraved minds. And you only need to look to the book of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, to understand what's going on here. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. We don't have time. I only have a few minutes left. But go to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'm just going to read excerpts from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 all the way to 32. Here's what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Yeah, we're suppressing the truth here because we want to be wicked, because we want to do our own thing, because we have a religion known as the religion of sex, and abortion is going to allow us— to to celebrate that religion because, you know, babies are inconvenient, and we want to continue our religion of sex unimpeded. Paul goes on to say, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Is there a better explanation than this? When you're celebrating the murder of children? Although they claim to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. He's talking about idolatry here. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Look, there's only two religions out there, ladies and gentlemen. You can either worship the Creator or you can worship the creation. And when you're worshipping the religion... Of sex, or you're worshiping sex and your body and your convenience and your autonomy, you're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. God he he goes on to say, Paul says, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, god haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no they don't even want to be parents. They, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things to serve death, wait for it, wait for it, this is why they're doing this. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. They're approving, they're celebrating the murder of children. Now, we don't fight against flesh and blood, we're fighting against the principalities and, 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 and the principalities of darkness, the demons, the devil. If if you don't believe in a devil, a Satan, an adversary, how do you explain how people could, could stoop to such barbarism? How do you explain it? You can't explain it. Paul explains it because this is the truth. Romans chapter 1. Read it. We need to pray for our country, we need to pray for the state of New York. By the way, New Mexico has a similar law to this. This is barbarism. We need to stand against it. And if you're not standing against it, you're not following what Jesus said. You're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. We need to stand against this because this is evil. We need to protect women. We need to protect children. We need to protect ourselves from this kind of evil. Let's protect ourselves. All right, back in a few minutes with the Trinity in the Old Testament. Notice in that CNN headline I mentioned uh, just before the break that uh, CNN wanted to just say, oh, we're just uh, securing Roe v. Wade rights. No, it's going a lot further than that. Abortion is being celebrated in New York, and it's taking away protections from the mother and certainly the baby. There's always somebody who doesn't get out alive with regard to an abortion. But let's now transition to a, a brighter topic, and that is... The Trinity in the Old Testament. My friend Jonathan McClatchy is a Christian writer. He's an international speaker and debater. We've known each other for several years. In fact, he interned with us uh, several summers ago here in uh, Charlotte, but he actually hails from Scotland. He's right now in Newcastle, London, Newcastle, London, Newcastle England, uh, getting his PhD in biology. He already has two master's degrees. He's a brilliant young mind. He's actually debated several Muslims uh, he's had 13 formal debates, nine radio debates, not all on Islam, he's debated other issues as well, uh, and, uh, he is a, uh, as I say, a brilliant young mind who has a website you need to go to, it's called Apologetics Dash, there's a dash in there, academy.org, apologeticsacademy.org. He's spoken in, uh, obviously North America, in, in, in Europe, in South Africa, Uh, promoting apologetics, and uh, he's done some amazing work, including this three-part series on our website on the Trinity in the Old Testament. And we're going to pull some uh, aspects of those three uh, blogs and talk about them here on the radio program. Now, I'm going to point out right now, before we get started, there is so much nuance to this argument that you really have to read the blogs to stay with us. You're going to need a scorecard here to stay with us because there's a lot going on in the Old Testament related to the Trinity, and it can be hard to follow unless you have the text right in front of you. So go to the website, crossexamine.org, look at the blogs. Jonathan has three recent blogs in the past, say, couple of weeks on this topic, the Trinity in the Old Testament, and we're just going to talk about a few of the points he makes here today on the radio program. So, Jonathan, great having you on the show. How are you doing? Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me on. I'm very well. How are you? Um, wonderful. And I know you're going to be a Ph.D. later this year. Uh, so that'll be a, a great accomplishment uh, for you. And I know you're going to be staying in this field of apologetics exactly where we're not sure. But you you have a great breadth of knowledge across many different topics and your insights into the Trinity in the Old Testament is something that I think is, is quite brilliant. And so let's talk about it a little bit. I, I, I pulled out from your three articles five ways. Now, there are more than these five ways, but there are five ways that we're going to try and talk about today how the Trinity is expressed in the Old Testament. And the first way is how Yahweh, God, sends Yahweh. Explain that. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 2 and and explain how Yahweh sends Yahweh.
1: So in Zechariah, the second chapter, we have um, um, a text which uh, in context is speaking about uh, or promising, forecasting the return of the exiles um, from Babylon. The Jewish exiles had gone, uh, the the Jews had gone out of their land into Babylon and they were in exile, in captivity, and God is planning, is promising to restore uh, the Israelites to their homeland. And he says in chapter 2 in the book of Zechariah, and from verse 6 and following, Up, up, flee from the land of the north. Now, the land of the north is Babylon, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, After his glory, sent me to the nations to plundered you. And now, hang on a minute, I'm confused. Yahweh has sent Yahweh? But we continue reading. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. What? Yahweh has sent Yahweh? But we continue reading. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Very clearly, Yahweh speaking, the Lord God speaking, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So again, we see not once, not not twice, but three times in this text, we see an assertion that Yahweh has been sent by Yahweh. So thus you have two individuals, two individual persons who are identified with the title of Yahweh. This uh, points, I think, quite clearly to uh, divine plurality in the uh, Hebrew Bible, and this is one of just many texts that we could look at.
0: Yeah, and this is in Zechariah chapter 2. As you mentioned, Zechariah is a prophet. He's probably born in Babylon, and he's talking about leaving Babylon after the exile. And so in Zechariah chapter 2, it's Yahweh sending Yahweh, which... You've got to scratch your head if, you do, if, if you're thinking God is just uh, strictly monotheistic and there's no plurality in the Godhead. How does, this, how does this work out? And then you also point out, Jonathan, and we're talking to Jonathan McClatchy, the articles on our website, the blog, the Cross-Examined blog, explain all this. So if you're having trouble following us, just read it on the blogs, three written by Jonathan McClatchy over the past week or two. You also point out that this happens as well in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who is writing, uh, say, about, say, 700 B.C. or so. And in Isaiah 48, you see the same kind of thing. Can, can you explain that?
1: Absolutely. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 48, and we're, we're breaking into the text at verse 11. Um, we, this is Yahweh, the Lord God speaking, and he says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory... I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among you has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. Now, Frank, tell me, up to this point, who who has been speaking
0: in this text? Well, it was Yahweh, but I'm confused as I read this, because it says, I have spoken and called him. Who's him?
1: Right, and then it goes on. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Um, and, so, and, uh, and so you have Yahweh sending Yahweh here along with the spirit of Yahweh.
0: Okay, so uh, Yahweh is sending Yahweh along with the spirit of Yahweh. And this is in Isaiah chapter 48. Now in your articles, uh, Jonathan, and again there are three of them, you spend a lot of time in Isaiah, and you spend—we'll we'll get to this a little bit later, but it's throughout Isaiah that this happens— that there's a plurality in the Godhead. It's not just here in Isaiah chapter 48. You point out it's in, when you put it all together, it's in Isaiah 9, it's in Isaiah 11, it's in Isaiah 48, it's in Isaiah 52 and 53, and on and on and on. So this is not isolated, ladies and gentlemen. We're not just taking obscure texts and saying this is just in one place. This is throughout. In fact, Not only does Yahweh send Yahweh, as you point out, the second way we know that the the Trinity is somehow expressed in the Old Testament is that Isaiah communicates all three persons in the Godhead. And this is done in Isaiah chapter 63. Pick it up there, Jonathan. So if we turn to Isaiah
1: 63, um, verses 7 to 10, It says, uh, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For he said, truly they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel or the messenger of his presence saved them. Now, the word which translates angel there is melach which can be translated angel, it could also be translated messenger. It's used in the Old Testament um, of human messengers. Uh, For example, uh, Malachi, Malachi's name means my messenger. It's the same word, Malach or Melach. Um, So the angel or the messenger of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. So um, here we have three individuals. We have uh, the father, because he's said to be a father to the Hebrew people in verse 8. They are my people, children who will not deal falsely. Um, and he became their savior, In all the affliction, he was afflicted, and the messenger of his presence saved them. Now, what does that refer to? Um, well, we'll come back to that in a moment. So it continues, and we get to verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Now, there's an allusion being made here to, um, to uh, the Israelites in the wilderness as they rebelled and grieved the spirit of, of Yahweh. Now, according to um, Psalm 7840, speaking of the same situation, the same context, the Israelites rebelling against the God of Israel in the wilderness. Psalm 7840 says, how often they rebelled against Him and context, Him is the Lord God. How often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. So just as they grieved the um, Yahweh in the desert, So the, as I 63 says, "To grieve the Holy Spirit, showing us that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, a divine person. Uh, the, the messenger of his presence is an allusion back to Exodus 23, in verse 20. Um, in Exodus 23, in verse 20, we read um, of uh, the messenger that was sent um, ahead of the people of Israel to, to guard them on the way. Um, it says, Behold, I send an, uh, an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Verse 21, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So this angel, or messenger, if you will, bears the very name of God himself. And that is an idiom meaning to, um, to that God's presence dwells in him. Um, and in fact, he has the prerogative to forgive sins and to withhold forgiveness, which is an attribute only um, rightly possessed by God. Um, and so we see that the messenger of Yahweh turns out to be a divine person himself who, in fact, can forgive sins. We also see that he's able to forgive sins in uh, the book of Zechariah in chapter 3 when he tells uh, Joshua, the high priest, that, uh, that I have taken away your sins from you. Um, so he has actually cleansed Joshua of his sin. So we see uh, that this messenger of the presence um, actually who turns out according to Malachi 3 to be the Messiah himself. In Malachi chapter 3 it speaks about the messenger of the covenant who is identified in the book of Judges in chapter 2 as um as the as the messenger of Yahweh the the the, the angel of the Lord. And so in we fact, see all these uh
0: yeah. Yeah, let's of? let's come back to uh, Malachi right after the break because that's another interesting uh scripture there regarding the Lord actually coming to the temple. We're talking to Jonathan McClatchy and uh, his three blog post on our website, crossexamine.org, is the Trinity in the Old Testament. And we're going to continue the conversation right after the break. I want to point out that this weekend I'll be at Westerville Christian Church outside of Columbus, right near Columbus, Ohio. And then Monday night I'll be at Ohio State University. And if our streaming equipment works, you'll be able to watch that. It, on our website, crossexamine.org, and on our Facebook pages, uh, crossexamine.org and Dr. Frank Turk. So check that out. And if you're in the area, love to see you at Westerville or Ohio State uh, this Sunday and Monday. We're back in two. Don't go away. Actually, I couldn't keep the pronouns correct when we were <laughs> we're looking at Isaiah 48. Uh, Jonathan, you said Isaiah 48 when it refers to him was actually Cyrus. Nevertheless... Uh, God is sending God in Isaiah 48, and by the way, all the details again are on our website in the three plus uh, three posts. Three posts. Easy for me to say. The three posts that Jonathan McClatchy, our guest today, has put at the Cross Examined blog, and this has to do with the Trinity in the Old Testament. So far, we've covered the fact that the Trinity is expressed in the Old Testament when Yahweh sends Yahweh. We gave a couple of examples there, including uh, Isaiah, or Zechariah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 48, and then Isaiah communicating all three persons in the Godhead. That's a second way that the Trinity is expressed in the Old Testament. Uh, Go to Isaiah chapter 63 and the other references that Jonathan had mentioned just before the break. Jonathan, now I want to transition to another point you make in your posts on our website, You point out that the third way that the Trinity is expressed, at least a plurality in the Godhead is expressed in the Old Testament, is the deity of the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. Why don't you unpack that one for us?
1: Absolutely. So in the book of Daniel and chapter 7, we read about um, this uh, mysterious figure who's identified as the Son of Man. Um, In fact, um, if we look earlier in the chapter before we get to verse 13, which is where the, um, the important part begins, we see um, that uh, there are actually um, there are plural thrones. So if you look at verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7, we have um, um, uh, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as wool, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, etc. Um, and so you see that there's Thrones, plural, that are put in place. So that um, indicates that there are actually multiple individuals that those thrones are for. And by the way, I think that relates to Psalm 110, where we have uh, um, you know, Yahweh saying to Adonai, uh, my, Yahweh saying to my Lord, uh, sit to my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So actually the, the um, Messianic figure in the Psalms actually is invited by the Lord God to sit at the right hand Of Yahweh himself. And so I think that's very consistent with what we see in the Psalms. Um, There's multiple thrones set up, one for the Ancient of Days, and one, as it turns out, for the Son of Man. Now, in Daniel uh, 7, continuing in the same chapter, down to verse 13, we see, um, he writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages." should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so um, we have a very uh, interesting description of this uh, son of man figure. Now, if we go over just to the previous chapter of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, verses 25 and 26, we read of uh, the description that King Darius uh, gives to the god of Daniel after Daniel has just been delivered from the lion's den. This is what he says. He says, King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed and his dominion will never end. And so Darius uses exactly the same description of the God of Daniel that Daniel in the next chapter uses of the Son of Man. So there we have a reason to think that we actually have the Son of Man as a divine figure. But actually, um, it gets um, even stronger than this. Um, The Son of Man is described as one who rides the clouds. He's introduced as one who comes in riding the clouds. Now, this is a description that's given to the Lord God elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, um, Mm -hmm. because the... uh, um in the Canaanite mythology uh Baal who is the son of the uh, the, high, the most high god El um was often described as the cloud rider the one who rides the clouds and mm-hmm. so what the biblical authors did was they took those attributes that were ascribed to Baal and then ascribed them to Yahweh instead um because Yahweh is the one true god and Baal is an is an idol um uh, and of course uh the uh, El the most high god is actually called by titles such as the Father of Years, and so on, um, which is similar to the way that the Ancient of Days is described um, as the the Ancient of Days. Now, as as far as um, uh, Yahweh being a cloud rider in the Old Testament, consider Isaiah 19, verse 1, where it says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. We also see in Deuteronomy 33, 26, there is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. Psalm 6, 6 to 8, 33, To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Uh, Psalm 104, 3, He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Um, and so here we have uh, multiple passages where Yahweh is portrayed as one who rides the clouds. And yet in Daniel 7, 1314, we see that the Son of Man is portrayed as the one who rides the clouds. And so we have an attribute of deity, again, ascribed to the Son of Man. Uh, Moreover, the Son of Man is um, um, given um, religious service or worship. In the um, original Aramaic text, he's given telach, which is the very highest form of religious service, which is is ascribed uh, uh, to uh, a deity. Um, we also see in uh, in the Greek Septuagint translation, he's given uh, Latrou, which is the very highest form of religious service and worship, again, only ever given to Yahweh. Um, and so we have uh, another reason to think that the individual spoken of uh, in Daniel 7 is, in fact, a divine human figure.
0: Jonathan, um, let me ask you a question about this, because—and we're talking to my friend Jonathan McClatchy, who hails from Scotland, he's getting his PhD in biology— uh, in Newcastle, England, and as you can see, he's he's very schooled on the on the scriptures, not just biology and apologetics, but Daniel. I mean Daniel, <laughs> but Jonathan. Where we are in Daniel, we're in Daniel chapter seven, and everyone knows that Jesus loved to refer to himself as the Son of Man. Well, what does that mean with regard to his deity, Jonathan?
1: Uh, so Jesus, actually, his favorite self-designation in the Gospels is the Son of Man, uh, right. and he, in fact, when uh, when he's before uh, uh, Caiaphas in Mark fourteen, and he ta- says, are, "Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed?" Um, and he says, um, "You know, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. i um, sitting at the right hand. Uh, coming, in, uh, sorry, you will see the Son of Man coming in the right hand of power. Uh, uh,
0: coming um, in the clouds, yes." He's either at the right hand and coming in the clouds and with great
1: power. Right, exactly. You'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Um, And so he actually combines there Psalm 110 with Daniel 7. And as I pointed out earlier, I actually don't think it's a coincidence that Psalm 110 is combined in that way with uh, Daniel 7, uh, because uh, you've got the reference to the thrones being set in place. In other words, there's a throne for the Ancient of Days, and there's a throne for the Son of Man as well. Um, Now... uh, uh, I debated uh, Shabir Ali, where I brought up this uh, this text, and mm-hmm. um, uh, he his response was this is this could be referring to some future to come eschatological figure uh, that Jesus is talking about. He's not necessarily identifying himself as the Son of Man. That argument is blown out the water when you read two chapters earlier in Mark chapter twelve, um, where Jesus uh, again uh, 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 cites. Uh, um, Uh, Psalm 110, so in in Mark chapter 12, verse 35, he says, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how um, can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, that's Psalm 110, sit at my right hand, till I through your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Um, So Jesus identifies himself as the Lord, David's Lord, spoken of in Psalm 110. Um, And since Jesus in Mark 14 combines the Son of Man passage from Daniel 7, with the text from Psalm 110, this indicates to us that uh, that he is uh, that, that he's actually identifying himself, not just as the individual from Psalm 110, seated at Yahweh's right hand, but also as the Son of Man.
0: Yes, and the bottom line, it seems to me anyway, if you go to Daniel 7, you have two figures who are both deities. You have the Ancient of Days, and then you have this Son of Man figure, and the Son of Man figure has this everlasting dominion. He is, in some sense, deity. And Jesus refers to himself as this Son of Man figure. So Jesus has self-designated himself as the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, who is a divine figure. And, and as you point out, Jonathan, again, we're talking to Jonathan McClatchy, three posts on our website, crossexamine.org, about the Trinity and the Old Testament one way we can see the Trinity, or at least the plurality of the Godhead in the Old Testament, is the fact that the Son of Man is a deity figure, and that deity figure is expressed in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. And then Jesus uh, says, I am the Son of Man. <laughs> I'm basically the deity from Daniel chapter 7. And as I say, there's much more nuance than we can cover here in the radio program, so you have to go to our website, crossexamine.org, and read these passages Now, with just a couple of minutes before the next break, we're just going to start the next one, the next way that the plurality of the Godhead and the Trinity is expressed in the Old Testament. The first is that Yahweh sends Yahweh. The second is that Isaiah communicates all three persons of the Godhead. The third is the fact that we have the deity of the Son of Man. Now, the fourth one, again, is much more complicated, but when you read through Isaiah, this is what pops out. The suffering servant is God, and this suffering servant is also the sacrifice. And this is, if, if you look at throughout the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 9 to 11 to 42 to 49, all the way to the famous suffering servant passage, 52 and 53, you get this. And I just want to bring up one point here, Jonathan, because we only have a minute before the break. Tell us about Isaiah 52, 15, this is part of the suffering servant passage, about how The suffering servant actually is a priest and sprinkles the nations. Tell us about that in just about a minute or so.
1: Absolutely. So um, in verse 15, it says that uh, the the suffering servant shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Um, And so the sprinkling uh, uh, tells us that this individual is actually a priest, that the priest would the blood from the sacrificed animal on the altar, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, which overshadowed the, the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. Um, and so uh, this priest in Isaiah 2.13 through Isaiah 53.12 has a sacrifice, we, we learn. He's a priest who carries a sacrifice. And then as we continue reading through the text, maybe we can get into this after the break, he, it turns out, the, the, the sacrifice actually turns out to be himself. He, he's carrying his own sacrifice, and with that sacrifice he is sprinkling the nations.
0: Wow. We're going to unpack that more after the break with my friend Jonathan McClatchy. This is the Trinity and the Old Testament discussion we're having. Again, there are three posts on our website, the, the blog at crossexamine.org. you can read all the nuances. So check that out. Now, before I, we go to the break, I want to mention... Uh, First of all, I want to thank you for putting uh, favorable reviews up on iTunes. Please continue to do that. I'll get to reading some of those in future programs. We've just got so much to cover here. But go to the one with my picture on it, and please put a five-star review up there. It gets to more people with those five-star reviews. Also want to mention, if you want to get our email once a month with a video, text EVIDENCE to 44222. That's EVIDENCE to 44222. We're back in two minutes. Frank Turek back with you, and my guest is Jonathan McClatchy. We're talking about the Trinity in the Old Testament. And uh, again, if you want to get video, one video a week uh, that we send out, a short video you can share with others, text the word evidence to 44222. That's evidence to 44222. We don't share your email address with anybody else, but you'll get... Uh, That one video a week that you can share with others, and a lot of people are finding that helpful. So, I wanted to make sure that I reiterated that before we went back to my friend Jonathan McClatchy. Uh, Again, he is talking about the Trinity in the Old Testament. All the nuances are in the three posts he put on our blog. We're trying to cram a lot here into these three segments. So far, we've pointed out that uh, the Trinity, or at least the plurality of the Godhead, is expressed in at least five ways. There's more than that, but five ways we're talking about here on the radio program. First is that. Yahweh sends Yahweh. The second is that Isaiah communicates all three persons in the Godhead. The third is the fact that the deity of the Son of Man in the Old Testament in Daniel is a, a, a person in the Godhead. He's not the Ancient of Days, but he's equivalent to the Ancient of Days. And then we were just talking about how the fact that the suffering servant is God and he's the sacrifice Uh, So let's pick it up right there. Make another point or two about that, uh, Jonathan, if you would. And this goes all the way through the book of Isaiah, culminating mostly in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53.
1: Absolutely. Um, And if your listeners haven't uh, read through the text of Isaiah 52.13 to Isaiah 53.12, I would highly recommend and encourage reading that, because it's a beautiful portrait of Israel's Messiah. Uh, It's written 700 years before Christ, and we actually have um, uh, manuscripts, um of the book of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls mm-hmm. uh that come ran, which document Isaiah fifty three, you know, going more than hundred years before Christ. Um and so it's um is it's a remarkable testament to the uh, divine inspiration of scripture and I think uh, tremendous evidence for the truth of the gospel message. Um yeah, just turning that... our attention then to this text that begins in Isaiah fifty two thirteen Behold my servant shall act wisely he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted Uh, And um, I'll I'll just read a little bit more. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance, and his form beyond that of his children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations? Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which they have not been told them they see, that which they have not heard, they understand. Who is believed what he has heard from us, and to him is the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like should have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now I've only read about half the text there, um, mm-hmm. and already you can see the uh, growing portrayal of Israel's Messiah. And I highly recommend to your listeners that they read the entire text for themselves and ask themselves who this could possibly be describing. As you continue in the chapter, you learn that he actually goes through death. He's cut off in the line of the living. He's laid in a grave and then he is resurrected again. He comes back to life. Um, Now, let's um, look more carefully at this text to see that actually um, the the servant being spoken of here is himself a divine person. Now, I have four different arguments to establish this. I'm going to give you one, just one argument out of my four. If you want the rest of the four arguments, you can find it in my blog post at the website, crossexamined.org. So in verse 13 of Isaiah 52, we read, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Um, and so we have this exaltation language that's applying to this servant. This servant is to be highly exalted, high and lifted up. Now, where have we read this before in the book of Isaiah, uh, this this uh, exaltation language? Well, if we turn over to the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah and, chap, and verse 1, we read of Isaiah's temple vision, and he says, "...in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up." And so, um, the same exaltation language that we saw applied to the servant in Isaiah 2.13 is here applied to Yahweh himself, Adonai, from Isaiah 6, verse 1. "...in the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up." We also see this language applied to, to Yahweh in Isaiah 33, The context is uh, Sennacherib's invasion of Judah. Uh, Sennacherib was the king of Assyria, and uh, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had tried everything, every measure possible to stave off the Assyrian invasion, um, and everything had failed. And so when all human schemes and devices have failed, God now announces, after Hezekiah pleads with God for deliverance, that God is going to step in to save his people. And in Isaiah 33, verse 5, it says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. Verse 10, now I will arise, says the Lord, now I will lift myself up, now I will be exalted. We see again, the same exaltation language that we saw applied to the servant is here again applied to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Psalm 57, 15 is another example, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, and so on. Um, now, one might be asking at this point, uh, could this exaltation language... Uh, although, it, yes, it's applied to Yahweh, but could it refer to others other than Yahweh? The answer to that question is found in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 17, which describes the great day of the Lord. Um, and it says, the haughty, this is from verse 11 of Isaiah 2, the haughty looks of men shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts is a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the satyrs of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Now, we see in the, uh, the Messianic thread in the book of Isaiah, that the one of the um missions of the of the servant is to rule over the earth establishing worldwide justice. You know this is the day of the Lord when God establishes justice on the earth and uh and uh, and establishes peace and uh reigns and the, the, the servant is to reign on the throne of David. So in if, if in that day only Yahweh according to Isaiah 2 is to be high and lifted up and exalted. And yet according to Isaiah 52:13 the servant is to be high and lifted up and exalted. Then tell me, Frank, who does that make the servant?
0: Yeah, the servant is God. And you spend a, a great deal of time in the article or in the three posts pointing out that not only is the servant God, but the same being from uh, Isaiah chapter 9 that is born and is called God is the suffering servant. And you, you connect all that, Jonathan. We're talking to Jonathan McClatchy. We're talking about the Trinity in the Old Testament. And it's fascinating material that Jonathan has put together. Again, go to our website and read the three posts if you want to see them. Uh, And I wish we could spend more time on that, Jonathan, but we can't. We've got to go to the fifth way that uh, the the plurality of the Godhead is expressed in the Old Testament. So let's just spend a couple minutes on this one. And number five is the fact that the Messiah is God who will come to earth. Now, both Zechariah and Malachi say this. And in Zechariah nine, we know the passage talking about the fact that uh your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, he is humble, and he's coming on a donkey. And of course Jesus fulfilled that on Palm Sunday. But then you go a few chapters later to Isaiah or to Zechariah chapter fourteen, and beginning in verse three, Jonathan, what does it say?
1: So in Zechariah fourteen, it speaks about God's deliverance of his people because uh This is when all the nations are encamped against Israel, and uh, when all hope seems to have failed, God steps in to deliver. Says the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, when he fights in the day of battle, and that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So Yahweh has physical feet, and of Mm -hmm. course this is uh, referred to in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and chapter 1, when um, the disciples are told by the angels— that um, this Jesus, whom you've seen go, go up to heaven, will come down, in The same, will come back, will, will return the same way you saw him go. And, of course, he ascends from the Mount of Olives, according to Acts chapter 1. So, again, that's this text you referred to there. Um, but then, um, more importantly, in verse 9 of Zechariah 14, it says, The Lord, and the Lord, Yahweh, will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. Now, we saw in Zechariah 9 that it's the messianic, it's the messiah, the one who rides on the back of a donkey, the messianic deliverer who is to, to uh, be king over all the earth, establishing worldwide justice and, uh, and uh, peace on the earth and, and, and so forth. Just what we see in, in Isaiah, the, the Messiah from Zechariah 9 is the same servant as the servant from Isaiah. I show this in the article. Um, and yet in chapter 9 of Zechariah 14, the, the king who gets to reign over all the earth um, is the Lord God himself. So the Messiah has to be the Lord
0: God. And then you point out that Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, the Lord you seek will suddenly come to the temple. Now, if that verse is true, it would seem that Jesus would have to come prior to 70 AD, or the Lord, which is Jesus, would have to come prior to 70 AD because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and still hasn't been rebuilt. So... All of this fits together, both Old and New Testaments go together. It's a tapestry, and Jonathan McClatchy has done a wonderful job of showing us how the plurality of the Godhead is expressed in the Old Testament in the five ways we talked about. And there are many more in the article, or there's three posts. Go to the website, crossexamine.org, and read each of the posts, and you can keep the scorecard when you can see all the passages in front of you. You can see how it all fits together like a tapestry. So it's a wonderful... uh, job you've done here, Jonathan. Tell uh, our listeners again where they can find you on the internet. Where's your website?
1: Uh, they can go to my website at apologetics Uh I run online webinars on the Saturdays often. They can also find me on Facebook, uh, and, and they can also find me on YouTube, both by at, at typing my name, Jonathan McClatchy, into YouTube, and also Apologetics Academy. I have two YouTube channels that people can find there.
0: Wonderful. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Great work. That's Jonathan McClatchy. Go to his website, check him out. We'll have him on again, and go to the website, our website, crossexamine.org, and click on the blog, and you can see these three articles or three blog posts uh, that string together all of the evidence that Jonathan came up with to show the plurality of the Godhead in the Old Testament, the Trinity in the Old Testament. All right, friends, again, I'll be at Westerville Christian Church this Sunday, all three services, and a Sunday night. Uh, Q&A. will also be at Ohio State uh, this Monday, the 28th. Again, if you want to get uh, one video a week from us, text the word evidence to 44222. That's evidence to 44222. And I'll see you again next week. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family
1: Association or American Family Radio.